You're listening to the What We Were podcast. This podcast is devoted to looking at important events and issues that affect us from around the world and that cry out for a new perspective that breaks the binary we often find ourselves trapped in. Our goal in doing so is to arrive just a few steps closer to what might be called the truth. Welcome. lessons from the Iowa caucuses. Uh, so I had the opportunity to observe the Iowa caucuses last week. It was an amazing experience, uh, better than expected. I really can't recommend that enough to any American citizen who just wants to see how that whole thing works. You know, go out and you know, touch and feel and hear and experience your democracy in action. Uh, that's where it all starts. Uh, that's the road to the White House. It begins right there in Iowa. It's a fascinating experience. I was there for almost a full week. Got to experience the weather, which was, you know, totally insane uh, for me. It was... Uh, for a couple of days there, we had, you know, sub-zero high temperatures uh, with wind and snow, and it was, uh, you know, I think it got as bad as maybe about negative 38 or 40 uh, with a wind chill. So, yeah, it was darn cold and uh, a lot of snow, a lot of ice. <laughs> you really had to watch your step anywhere you went. I, uh, you know, I pushed someone out of a snowdrift at one point. I had to push the car that uh, I was traveling in out of the snow a couple times. And uh, yeah, just a, quite an experience uh, to see all that weather. I actually got to attend a caucus, uh, which is really cool and unexpected. So there's, there's, I mean, there's a couple ways to do this. If, if anybody wants to, I, I, I think it's, I think it's worth it. I mean, I think it's even worth, you know, the investment of, you know, paying for your own hotel and just uh, go out and, you know, volunteer for a campaign that you uh, that you believe in or, you know, even just uh, follow around some candidates. You could go to Iowa and just follow the candidates around to their various stops and go see them at the events. And, uh, you know, that alone is uh, quite an experience. I did volunteer for a campaign and I ended up getting to actually speak to voters on caucus night which I'll get into later. But uh, yeah, it was a great experience. So, you know, the first thing I'll say, this is lessons from the Iowa caucuses. And the first thing I'll say is that caucuses, in my view, are a superior way to do elections. I wish every election were done this way in every state, including the general election. It's harder, definitely. Uh, it requires uh, more effort on the part of campaigns and voters. You know, at a caucus, voters actually have to meet their fellow citizens at a specific time in a specific place. And, you know, they have to actually be in the room when speeches are made on behalf of, of each candidate, ideally. So, you know, if you are in a caucus state, you know, you actually have to go in and, and, and see your neighbors, you know, look your fellow citizens in the eye and 
hear from every candidate. Hear every candidate out one last time, you know, after being inundated with all of the misleading ads and the so-called debates. You have to hear everyone out in order to participate. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's American. I also think the caucus system reduces the power of advertising and, you know, campaigning from a distance. Because no matter how many TV or radio commercials or a candidate is able to buy, every candidate gets a chance to have one last word with the voters after the doors shut on caucus night. But I mean, in order to even have that last word with voters, you know, campaigns have to recruit people to give it. They have to recruit uh, precinct captains. Ideally, it's, you know, people who live within that precinct, people who live nearby. But campaigns have to go out and recruit precinct captains to give that, you know, two to three to four to five minute speech on caucus night. And recruiting precinct captains isn't easy. You know, you have to you have to go out and visit people and get them excited about your candidacy, you know, to visit them in person. And you got to give them the confidence to stand up in front of a, you know, potentially a pretty large crowd of 300 or 400 people, potentially. And deliver a speech about the candidate that's, you know, hopefully good enough that some people are swayed on caucus night to choose that candidate. Now, how many caucus voters are actually capable of being persuaded by the time they get to the caucus and how many actually go in with the intention of having conversations with their fellow citizens i'm afraid not many there was a whole lot of uh trump gear worn by voters at my caucus site you know and most people when they came in, they you know they weren't spending time talking to their fellow citizens about who they intended to vote for and you know what issues were important to them because their minds were were probably made up. Yeah, so it was it was fairly quiet in the room before voting took place, and that was disappointing to me. Um, not all that unexpected, but it was disappointing. And you could say that uh, I mean you could, you could say that a good voter you know, would have done all the homework necessary to make up their mind before caucus night. And, and there's some truth to that. But, uh, you know, I still think that all of us, we should never be 100% committed to some idea or some person, not 100%. We should always leave a door cracked for a new possibility to enter. So I wish more caucus voters took that approach and actually listened to the speeches and allowed themselves to be moved one way or another without, you know, too much regard for their prior opinions. And I, I think a few people did that. I think there were a few people in the room who were capable of that, but I do wish that was more commonplace. That would be a true democracy in my view. I personally did walk around the room to have conversations with several voters to ask them what was on their minds. And, and that was, that was a magical experience, you know, really made me realize what's at stake in our elections and why we're so lucky to have representative government. 
I spoke to one older woman named Cheryl, uh, who mentioned that she suffers from Parkinson's disease, and, and uh, she'd actually just had a heart attack uh, the week before. It was her first caucus, and she was excited to be there. And you know, Cheryl's quality of life depends on good leadership in this country. And you know, we haven't had consistently good leadership in this country in a long, long time. And the caucus system, you know, it's, um, it is harder for voters, for sure, uh, because you don't just get to show up anytime you want throughout the day. You, you know, you, you can't just mail in your vote. You, you have to show up at a specific time. You have to be present at the time of the caucus, which is at 7 p.m. And it's, you know, it's even harder when you're, you know, you're dealing with dangerously cold temperatures and icy roads as we were in Iowa at that time. I, I personally think that's all a good thing. I, I don't want voting to be as easy as ordering takeout. I think if you want to participate in democracy, you should have some skin in the game. You should actually have to make some sacrifices and, you know, arrange your schedule to be able to be there with your fellow citizens. Honestly, I think I think if we only had people voting in elections who were willing to do all that, to brave the snow and to, you know, show up on time, we'd probably have a lot better politicians. So that's what I have to say about the mechanics of the Iowa caucuses. The second thing I want to talk about is just how incredibly hard we've made it to be and remain a decent human being when running for political office in America. The corporate media, of course, contributes to this difficulty. Yes, that's true. But so do voters. And, you know, official or unofficial campaign surrogates. So we're all part of that problem. Making it difficult for, you know, decent people to want to run for public office. Political candidates in America today, particularly at the top levels of politics, running for federal office, like presidential candidates, have to deal with hecklers and paid protesters and, you know, scurrilous innuendo about their personal and professional lives or their their hidden beliefs and motives. You know, the questions that they get too often are just, they're not of the genuinely curious variety. They're of the gotcha variety. Let me catch you making a mistake. Let me catch you not knowing the answer to something as if our political candidates can possibly know the answer to everything. That seems to be what we expect now. I personally would love to hear, and you know, I got to see that a little bit, but I, I, I would love to hear more political candidates just answer, you know, that's a great question, and I'm not sure about that. That's something we really ought to think about. That's a, that's a tricky one. I'm not sure. I don't really have an answer to that. I don't hear that ever. I, you know, every, every political candidate now has the answer to everything. And I just think that's BS. We don't have the answers to everything. And it would be nice to have 
a leader who would just say, you know, honestly, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's a pretty miserable environment, the political campaigns in America, for an honest, sincere citizen to subject themselves to, if you think about it. Imagine an ordinary citizen who, you know, hasn't run for political office before, but who genuinely cares about the future of the country. You know, they start out by just, you know, talking to friends and neighbors and relatives. And they're, they're getting really positive feedback from people on the right, the left, the middle. But then they throw their hat in the ring officially and campaign season starts. They're used to having, you know, one-on-one or small group conversations with people in the real world who aren't trying to trip them up or tear them down, but who are just genuinely curious to get their views on certain issues. And they actually listen and they allow themselves to be won over if the argument is convincing enough. That's kind of how these political candidacies start. You know, they start talking to their neighbors and their friends and they get some good feedback. But, you know, throw them into the middle of a national political contest. And suddenly, in their midst, in addition to, you know, the sincere voters who just want to know their views on things, you also have journalists and operatives from other campaigns or causes who are there just to antagonize them in the hopes of catching them making a mistake or losing their temper. That's a living hell. And you shouldn't have to go through hell to participate in politics. There's a whole lot of very capable people in America who could be in political office, but who don't want to endure hell to get there. And so they just stay out of it. And so guess what? We increasingly have indecent men and women running for office. Or at best, Numb and robotic men and women who are incapable of being hurt or bothered by such things. Some may say being a a jerk or numb is a feature, not a bug for a politician. But I don't want a president who is so dead inside that they don't feel things or who are so defensive that they lose their basic respect for people. The leader of a country has to feel things. They have to be able to empathize, to be made sad, to feel someone else's pain as if it were their own. But the decent men and women, for the most part, they refuse to put their children or their husband or wife through that kind of ordeal. They don't want to lose their soul, so they don't run for political office in America. Which basically means your best hope in America is for someone who's, you know, willing to be a martyr to the American cause. Because that's often what it takes, and and that's a very rare individual. Those types of people don't come along very often. Getting through the American presidential primary and, and caucus season with your soul intact, it seems like 
almost an impossible proposition in the current form of our democracy. Most candidates have, you know, surrendered their souls long before they arrive at the Iowa caucuses, with few exceptions. I think only a handful of newcomers and outsiders you know, still bleed when they get cut and are willing to be cut over and over again because there's a higher cause. But that's, uh, again, that's, that's, there are not a lot of those people. You know, there's a lot of serious pain in this country that's being ignored. And part of why it's being ignored is because our political process is so ruthless that feelings have to be turned off or ignored in order to survive the onslaught. You know, democracies, I don't think, can function simply with an adherence to the letter of the law on elections. You know, included in the letter of law are things like, you know, you can't vote more than once. You can't steal or destroy someone else's campaign signs. You know, rules like that are crucial, obviously. But they're not enough. People actually have to buy into and respect the spirit of democratic elections and the norms that go along with those in order to have a functioning democracy. And there are no laws for that. It's just, you just have to, you have to get people to voluntarily submit to some rules and some norms. We've been able to do that for the first 200 plus years of our republic, but we, we seem to be losing that. People really do have to buy into and respect the spirit of democratic elections. And, I, and by that, I mean not spreading baseless lies about political candidates. By that, I mean not heckling candidates when they're you know, trying to speak to voters. Or they're minding their own business while they're eating a meal. Because these people are also human, by the way. You might want to treat them like they're humans. But a growing number of people have just decided not to follow the norms or the spirit of democratic elections. And if we don't put a stop to it, we're going to scare off all the best talent for political offices because they're they're going to eventually realize that it's impossible to have an honest conversation anymore as long as you have these people who are just trying to undermine the system and shut down conversation because they want their candidate or their issue to be the only one that succeeds, and they'll do anything to get that to happen. I did a little unscientific poll earlier, asking, I asked some parents, what's the one thing that you have to remind your kids about most often? What's the, what's the one thing you got to constantly remind your kids about when teaching them how to socialize with other human beings? And the consensus was exactly what I expected which is not to interrupt people when they're talking or, or wait, wait their turn to talk. 
This is something that every human being from every culture that I know of in the world has drilled into their heads almost daily for several of their earliest formative years. You couldn't pass out of the first grade in America without the basic ability to wait until someone finishes speaking before you speak. Kids in the early stages of these lessons can be really difficult to be around. You know, not only do they they interrupt when others are speaking, they'll they'll physically move themselves to within a few inches of your face to let you know they're there while speaking. And parents manage and they, you know, try not to get too annoyed because these are kids and their brains aren't fully developed and you know, they're still learning the, the rules of the road. And they don't come pre pre-programmed with the norms of society that we've developed over the course of several thousand years. But they learn pretty quickly that things just tend to work better for everyone when people abide by some of the same basic rules of the road in conversation. And before a person reaches adulthood, this has become a norm in their lives. And if it hasn't, for the rare individual that it hasn't, They'll struggle, they'll struggle to make friends. They'll probably get kicked out of school. Because nothing works in society without adherence to the basic norm that you don't interrupt when someone else is talking. Nothing works. Not relationships, not friendships, not romantic relationships, not school, not business, certainly not politics. Therefore, it is a It is a precious, non-negotiable norm that every parent on earth instructs their kids to follow. And this norm is quickly being abandoned here in America. People increasingly don't wait their turn to speak, not just kids. Again, we, we expect kids below a certain age to do that. I'm talking about adults. People in positions of authority, members of Congress. And we see this all the time now when someone tries to speak to an audience about some important subject up for debate. More and more often, you know, protesters and hecklers show up with the intention of shutting down the discussion. They shout slogans, they stomp their feet, they hold up banners like children. Like children who never learned that lesson. And sometimes they're successful in forcing the event to end prematurely. Sometimes their numbers are enough to make an event end prematurely. And some of these people, you know, they justify their actions by saying that, you know, words are violence. Words are violence. And, you know, others justify their actions by saying that, well, there could be no rules because uh, we haven't got time for rules anymore. Everyone's issue, everyone's candidate, everyone's, everyone's thing is, a, is life or death. And therefore, it warrants abandoning all rules of civility because it's, a, it's life or death. My issue is life or death. You don't understand. Your words are violence. My issue is life or death. It wasn't that long ago that this sort of thing, this, you know, this heckling and trying to shut down speech, It just didn't happen. 
It's like 20, 25 years ago. Like people would not dare do that 25 years ago. You know, more importantly, no one with any influence or power would endorse or encourage that kind of behavior. Now they do encourage it. There are like people in, in positions of authority who encourage that kind of behavior. As long as it's, as long as the people who are doing it are on their side. I don't, you know, I don't know like what people would have done 25 years ago if somebody stood up and, you know, rudely interrupted a speaker with a question or shouted him or her down or several, you know, protesters, you know, trying to shut down some speech 25 years ago. It didn't, but it didn't happen. I mean, like, I guess probably nothing would have been different about the reaction. We would have, you know, removed them from the venue. We'd, we'd scold them for being rude and impolite. You know, it's tempting to think, yeah, we, we wouldn't have put up with that 25 years ago, but I, I, I don't think that's actually the case. People just didn't do that 25 years ago. It didn't occur to anybody, except for the, the clinically insane, to attempt something like that. And part of the reason was because they knew that no one was going to have their back for behaving that way. So they'd be alone. And, you know, that fear of being ostracized by society was enough of a deterrent that people didn't do that sort of thing. There's no such fear, no such deterrent effect today. But it's even worse than that. Not only do people not face consequences for being rude and disruptive, it seems like in most cases, there's a better chance of becoming famous and beloved by certain tribes for rudely interrupting a speech or a conversation, then there is any chance of, you know, any meaningful consequences for it. You can get rewarded. You can, you can get a, a job on a campaign or it's, it's some media outlet for being a heckler, for being a disruptor, for being someone who shuts down someone else's speech. You get rewarded for that. You get a social media following for that. You know, even if the rewards for being rude only amount to, you know, 15 minutes of fame, you know, by being retweeted on, on Twitter or X, that's still not a bad trade-off in the eyes of a lot of people. Embarrass yourself for a few minutes. Piss off a bunch of your fellow humans. Hey, but at least the video of you Doing that is going to get retweeted by a bunch of your, the fellow members of your tribe online. And you might, even, you might hit the lottery. And, you know, your, your rudeness, your lack of civility catapults you into newfound fame. You get adopted as an asset by some tribe somewhere. Like I said, you may get a, you may get a paid position. Some of these people who have done this stuff have actually wound up as commentators on major news networks. People who've just decided that the best way they can solve the problems in this country is just to shut down people's speech, to interrupt people. They get rewarded with jobs. So it happens all the time. I mean, it's uh, it may be the climate change tribe or the MAGA tribe or some other tribe. There are so many tribes out there who are just willing to adopt 
malcontents, as long as the malcontents agreed to aim their fire exclusively at the perceived enemies of the tribe and, and never deviate from that. So today, you know, it's become expected that when someone attempts to speak their mind about an important and complex issue, someone in the audience will be there to disrupt and intimidate the speaker. They speak out of turn, they shout accusations, or just otherwise attempt to embarrass the person who's speaking. It has become an epidemic in America and some other Western countries, such that fewer and fewer people are willing to even try to speak at all. So we don't speak to one another as much as we used to. And as a result, you know, few people bother standing up to speak hard truths anymore for fear of having to deal with the rude and often hysterical or physically aggressive disruptors who are not afraid to invade the personal space of their human target you know, to demand yes or no answers to complex questions. You know, they're either filming themselves in the act or they're counting on someone else in the crowd to film it for them. We have members of Congress now who fit this description. Members of Congress. The current president and the former president both encourage this behavior. So long as it's their goons and so long as those goons promise to aim their fire only at their political enemies. Uh, so I saw this behavior in person for the first time at the Iowa caucuses. Before that, I'd only really seen it you know, on social media or on the news. So I was attending an event that was hosted by the Vivek Ramaswamy campaign. It was one of like 400 events that he did across the state. Vivek and his wife, Apurva, they, they barnstormed all over that state. They visited all 99, 99 Iowa counties twice. I can't say for sure uh, you know, how much sleep Vivek averaged per night, but I, I can't imagine it was more than you know, two or three hours on most nights. It was like it was an incredible sight to watch him work as hard as he did. Evidently, just for the love of his country. Not many politicians do that anymore. Most campaigns rely heavily on, you know, expensive TV and radio and social media ads, billboards and yard signs. Their events, if they do any, are thoroughly scripted. The candidates get up on stage with, you know, Several carefully chosen supporters sitting or standing behind them. They're decked out in campaign t-shirts and hats and they're holding signs. Vivek's events were nothing like that. By the way, they almost never got canceled, no matter how much snow was falling, no matter how cold it got. They were off the cuff. Mostly spontaneous and, and very interactive. And whether you agree with his policy proposals or not, it's obvious to anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear that Vivek and his family care deeply about this country 
so deeply that they were willing to forego sleep and tens of millions of dollars of their own hard-earned money and answer thousands of questions from ordinary attendees sincerely hoping to learn something about the candidate and, and protesters who were just attempting to create viral moments. He answered all the questions. No other candidate did that. So, at the beginning of this particular event, I attended the, uh, it's a completely packed room. And, uh, you know, Vivek had just walked in and, and just gotten started. And a little girl and her mother uh, started making their way to the front row to get a better view. And uh, so they sat down in the front row. And, you know, within the first 10 minutes as Vivek was speaking, the first of you know, several climate change protesters started aggressively interrupting and, and moving towards the front of the room to demand the opportunity to ask a question. Now, there was going to be a question and answer session at the end, but they had to just rudely interrupt, of course, like children. And Vivek was, uh, you know, he was as gracious as anyone could be under the circumstances. Maybe too gracious. And, you know, he promised the first rude protester an opportunity to ask his question once the event opened up for Q&A. But, you know, before long, the other protesters from the same group started interrupting and shouting accusations and attempting to, you know, just create so much chaos that the event would have to be shut down. And it got noisy and awkward and confrontational. And as all that unfolded, you know, the mother grabbed her little girl's hand and hurried her out of the room. So a little American girl her first experience of American civics. And she's forced to witness young adults who should know better attempting to intimidate and shout down someone who was just trying to communicate to an audience that had actually gathered there to hear him speak. Is that good for America? Is traumatizing little girls as their first memory of American civics their first memory of American civics in action. Is that a good thing for America? I'm not even going to say what I think is a just punishment for that sort of behavior. But I mean, I, you know, suffice to say, I think we should get medieval on the kinds of people who are doing that sort of thing. And the people who support it. But it happens. And it happens because a powerful or well-funded tribe endorses that kind of behavior. In this case, it was a you know registered tax-exempt 501c4 called Sunrise Movement. Some climate change organization that wants to end the use of fossil fuels anywhere. Yeah, I looked up their records and said they had, uh, in 2021, they had $7 million in total assets and $4 million in revenue. That's a pretty, pretty damn good gig for an organization that exists to, you know, convince no one of anything, but simply frustrate and intimidate their political opponents into submission by making it impossible to speak. And it's a group that's supported 
by the Democratic Party and members of Congress, including Bernie Sanders and you know people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that is wrong. That is wrong. But, you know, it wasn't just left-wing groups interrupting Vivek and others' events. It was the, the MAGA crowd, too. You know, Trump famously got elected in part by being a great counterpuncher, as he would like to say, which meant that, you know, he was willing to respond to his critics or political enemies as forcefully as they came after him, which Republicans previously had chosen not to do. And I think that's mostly a good thing to be a counterpuncher, as long as it doesn't devolve into, you know, personal insults, although it often does. You know, but Trump's counterpunching that started in 2012, it, you know, it, it inspired an army of goons to join in. And they quickly realized that this was a fast way to build a social media following that, you know, they could eventually monetize and, you know, just use to gain special access to candidates. And they didn't stop at counterpunching. They, now they, you know, they preemptively punch with, you know, personal insults and accusations and conspiracies, whatever, whatever they can come up with that they believe advances Donald Trump's candidacy. And I don't think they're always successful in doing that, by the way. I don't think they're always advancing his candidacy. I think they're often turning people off, by the way, because I think people are genuinely getting tired of just all of the negativity, finally, finally getting tired of it. But whether they're effective or not, I see no difference between the MAGA goons who interrupt events and spread conspiracy theories and call people names, and the climate change hecklers paid for by the Sunrise Movement. I don't see how what they do is any different than what the Hillary Clinton campaign did with, you know, concocting the Steele dossier. And it doesn't really matter to me what side you're on or what issue you're promoting if you traffic in conspiracy theories and, you know, viral confrontations just to sow chaos in our country. All of these groups are vicious, mean-spirited, and disruptive, and they're making any form of democracy a lot more difficult. They're making civilization itself more difficult because they're making it harder to have serious conversations in America that civilization depends on us having. And they're scaring decent people away from running for political office. You know, Vivek was remarkable for his ability to confront these people directly, but with respect. He always maintained his calm. He never raised his voice like I've been doing. And he always gave them an opportunity to be heard. Nobody was kicked out prematurely or stopped at the door, even when it was clear that they were there to be disruptive and be rude. And he actually won some of those people over, by the way. Disarming them with his kindness and his authenticity. Vivek was, 
He was channeling Gandhi or Jesus Christ with his ability to turn the other cheek and hear people out without resorting to insults or force. You know, kindness these days, it tends to be associated with, with weakness or uncertainty, but it really shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. Kindness and strength are not mutually exclusive. It may be more challenging to strike that kind of balance. But I think Vivek, you know, proved that it's possible to actually be kind and respectful while also being tough and decisive. There's no doubt in my mind that Vivek Ramaswamy was the most decent human being running on the Republican side. He was also the most accessible and the most honest, often giving opinions he knew weren't popular within the Republican Party. He effectively ran on an anti-war platform. And he offered an olive branch to to pro-choice voters by stating his position that, you know, American law needs to be adjusted to better hold men accountable in the event of pregnancy. Nobody's said that before. I've never heard that before. Those are two very important positions that have broad appeal on the left and the right. And so for all that, he was uh, rewarded by being left out of the final debate before Iowa after CNN changed the qualifications for participants. And some of the pollsters, you know, even refused to mention him as a candidate when contacting voters to ask who they plan to vote for. He was called a snake and a traitor and a George Soros plant by the MAGA goons. Defamatory accusations were made that were, you know, serious enough to possibly inspire violence against him, which I believe led him to wear a bulletproof vest to all of his stops. It was sick. It is sick. The people who participated in that, on the MAGA side or the climate change side, whatever side, whatever tribe, whatever stupid tribe, the people who participated in that shouldn't have any role or any affiliation with any political campaign or any political party moving forward. Don't interrupt someone else when they're speaking. Don't accost people who don't want to talk to you. These are very easy concepts for both sides to come to an agreement on. So one thing we have to be united on as a country, I think, is that no one violates the basic norm of waiting your turn to speak. And that means that any politician or individual surrogate or, or group that promotes that kind of behavior has to go. Period. This has to be a red line. The people violating that norm are dividing our country. They are un-American. The Laura Loomers, the Leo Terrells, this is un-American. And they resort to shouting and disrupting because like little children, they just have to be heard. 
right this minute, even if the people in the room are preoccupied or don't want to hear them. And I'll add Greta Thunberg to that list. It's the same, this is the same group of people. Greta Thunberg, Laura Loomer, Leo Terrell, all these people whose idea of discourse is shouting people down and shutting people up and spreading conspiracy theories and telling lies about people. They're children. They're children who never learned those norms or forgot those norms somehow, abandoned those norms. So, you know, that was a disappointing aspect of the Iowa caucuses. And I, I don't know if it's just the Iowa caucuses because these kinds of people are everywhere. And they're a product of an education system, by the way, that doesn't actually teach American history or American civics. And they have no idea what it means to be a citizen of any country. Let alone the United States of America. So Vivek dropped out after a disappointing uh, 8%. Still impressive, by the way. 8% going from pretty much unknown to 8% of the vote. So, But I believe that that basically means there's no one left on the Republican side that's both like decent and fully conscious and you know not numb. A decent human being and fully conscious human being. Whatever merit you know, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley have, they're numb, and they're robotic, and they're predictable. 90% of what comes out of their mouths has been pre-rehearsed or poll-tested. I can't think of a single moment since the campaign has started when either of them has gotten an unexpected question and, and didn't try to jam some pre-rehearsed answer that doesn't even fit the question. Rather than pause... And actually ponder it like a normal human being would. You know, decent and fully conscious may not be as important to you as someone's viewpoints or campaign promises, but I think they should be equally important. They should be equally important factors. I think it was a time in this country not that long ago when they were equally important factors. Yes, you, you want somebody who's intelligent, who has the right political positions, but you want a human being, don't you? You want a human being who, who talks to you like a normal human being, right? When I'm listening to politicians nowadays, all of them, Joe Biden, you know, all of them, all the, all the people really running for president right now on the Republican and Democrat side, for the most part, it reminds me of the Truman Show. And, you know, everything that anyone other than Truman said was just fake and rehearsed. It was some made up line that they just repeated every single day. And, you know, eventually, you know, Truman played by Jim Carrey. He, he finally like realizes like how fake and like just scripted it all sounds. And he starts questioning them. Like, why are you talking like that? What are you, who are you talking to? What, why are you, why are you trying to sell me some product? And that's how I feel as I'm, as I'm listening to these people talk. Ron DeSantis might make a great president. I don't, I don't know. He, he might be a great president. He may, have, he may be right about all of his, his policy proposals. I think I would agree with him on most of his policy ideas. But he just doesn't sound like a human being when he talks. He sounds like a wind-up doll. He sounds like everything he says has been, has been practiced in his room. Like, there's not a single original thought 
escapes his lips. And that's just weird to me. So I wish we could get back to that. You know, that I wish we could get back to that demand for somebody who's both. Who's smart, who has the right political positions, but also is just, just alive, just human. You know, every now and then they say, when they're asked a question, they say, uh, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't really thought of that. I don't know if I have the right answer to that. I'll, let me think about that for a while. Somebody says, you know, I'm not, you know, I've, I've got some thoughts on that, but I could be persuaded in, in one way or the other. That, God, that would be amazing. That would be very human. And it would also just be nice, by the way, to have somebody, a politician, a leader of the country, regardless of their political views, who you can just admire and strive to be like as a fellow human being, because you know they're a good human being, right? That'd be amazing, right? Just somebody who's a good human being, agree or disagree with their politics, very good human being, very authentic, not a bullshitter. When is the last time someone like that was in the White House? Can anyone tell me? I I don't know if it's happened in my lifetime. We've gone decades now without this type of human being in the White House. So, you know, what about candidates who fit that mold outside of the Republican Party? Amazingly, I think there are actually two other candidates still in the presidential race who are also decent Fully conscious human beings. One of them is Dean Phillips, the Democratic congressman from Minnesota. And the other is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running as an independent, but who's, you know, basically been a lifelong Democrat. You know, many listeners have probably already know about RFK Jr., but you should get to know Dean Phillips. Check out Barry Weiss's Honestly podcast. Uh, she did an interview with him recently. I think, I think Phillips is... <laughs> I think he might be the only one of his kind in the Democratic Party in Congress. I hope I'm wrong about that. But, you know, he has some really common sense views that the majority of Americans in both parties agree with. And he's a really open minded guy on, you know, the handful of topics that are so bitterly divisive in this country. He's just a good man. He's an honest man. He's not a name caller. He's not dogmatically committed to any ideas that half the country considers to be a non-starter. He's not going to shove any of his views on social issues down people's throats. He's just a very nice man. He's got a great background, just a great story. His life story is great. And, uh, And he hasn't lost his soul since being in Congress. And that's really rare today. And, uh, you know, Dean Phillips needs to be elevated, but instead he's, he's getting the same treatment Vivek Ramaswamy got. He's totally ignored by the media. He's you know, accused of being a plant by Donald Trump or whatever. RFK Jr. faces the same obstacles and he's not invited on TV. His, uh, some of his interviews have been censored on YouTube because he expresses, uh, you know, some heterodox views on vaccinations. But Dean Phillips is running in the New Hampshire primary for the Democrats. And he may just shock the world, by the way, with a resounding victory there. Which, that that might be happening right as I release this podcast. 
And maybe it will force the media to actually cover his candidacy if he wins the New Hampshire primary. Let's hope so, because there's no doubt, you know, he would add something to the conversation. But the sad conclusion about all three of these candidates, Vivek, RFK Jr. and Dean Phillips, is that our political system has been reconfigured by powerful special interests to crush and weed out decent men and women who are fully conscious and willing to engage with all Americans. The military-industrial complex, the corporate media, the central bankers and the monopolies, they cannot tolerate an American populace that's actually committed to finding solutions and reaching compromise. They cannot they cannot abide on American society that's actually united and actually talks to one another and actually listens to one another. They just can't have it. And that's a problem. And although I think it'd be great if Trump chose Vivek as his vice president, in part because I think Vivek could actually like lower the temperature of the campaign and maybe bring out a better side of Trump. I think there's a real possibility that eventually, maybe even this political cycle, the American people are just, are, just going to opt for the person who is simply the most decent, the kindest, and the least beholden to special interests. I think we're getting close to just not caring so much about what are their specific views on various issues. And, and they just, we, we're going to start caring more about whether or not they're just, are they simply an authentic and decent human being who means well and has the American people's best interest at heart? We would settle for that. I think a lot of Americans would set aside all of their pet issues just for someone like that, a decent human being who is fully awake and listening and just willing to, to, you know, hear everyone out and make the best decision. And right now, the only two people still in it who embody that are, are both lifelong Democrats. So that was the Iowa caucuses. Uh, I left them feeling at once discouraged about the future of America and this upcoming presidential election, but also recommitted and re-energized about the wonderful people I get to call my fellow citizens, most of whom are hardworking, honest, and you know would help get your car out of a snowdrift or shovel your walkway in a blizzard. At least those were the Iowans that I met. That's all I have for today. Thanks for listening. Give us a follow and may God bless America.